The New York Times reported last year that between 1995 and 2012, 163 children between the ages of 13 and 15 were granted judicial approval to marry. We'll discuss it and much more on this edition of Frank Relationships. You're listening to Frank Relationships with Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Yes, as always, those are my babies. Thanks for getting Daddy started today. Mwah! History professor Dr. Nicholas Surrett is with us today. And I'm curious, does child marriage exist in the U.S.? It does indeed. It is actually possible to marry below the age of 18 in every single state in the United States, and thousands of people do so every year. How low? I mean, how low can you go? Twelve. Twelve. Wow. Okay. I have a 13-year-old son, and if I had a daughter that was one year younger than he is, the thought of her marrying a 50-year-old man, which which we haven't even gotten into, but which is which does happen. We're not talking about. We're not talking about two oh, 12-year-olds getting yeah, married. Yeah, you're talking about a 12-year-old marrying a grown person. Yeah. I, wow. Is that the dynamic that you were talking about, Dr. Surrett? Yes, it can be. It is possible in the U.S. for two teenagers to marry each other, so okay. say two 15-year-olds or something like that. But more frequently what we see is younger girls marrying older men, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and do you think this is a problem do you think it just is what it is or, or how, how did, yeah how did you get into this throw but, yeah, back what, to an earlier time in our history what's your stand on it right if you have well one. i i think it's a, a bad idea for mm -hmm. sure uh, okay. i think that it uh in essence it it allows it, it, lawmakers that seem to believe that marriage is going to keep girls safe and that if men are willing to marry them as opposed to simply having sex with them outside of marriage, that somehow marriage is, you know, is uh, sanctifying that relationship in a way that is actually, most evidence suggests, not true. Mm -hmm. um, that girls are exploited during marriage um, and that this is a bad for their health, mental and physical. And But there's a parental consent that goes with it. Is that correct? Yes, it depends on the state. All 50 states have different laws, um, but in many states what's required is parental consent, and particularly for the lower ages, sometimes it's judicial consent as well. So you have to have a, a family court judge sign off on the marriage. And do, do more times than not, does the judge sign once it gets to him or, or throw it out? Uh, it depends. I haven't studied systematically the applications that have been given to the judges, so it's difficult to know whether the judges are saying no all that frequently. We know that in many states, certainly they're saying yes. And they're generally, um, they're sympathetic, particularly if the girl is pregnant right. already. And in some states, there are actually specific laws that say if she is pregnant, that is the exception that the judge can grant or that the parent can grant as well. Now, if she's pregnant and it 
the the man is you know over 18 that could be statutory rape right that's correct yes so there are a variety of again states do it sort of differently but in many cases what has already happened is statutory rape depending on the state law and so usually what has to happen for that not to be prosecuted is that the DA and the police sort of look the other way and marriage is seen as the solution to what would otherwise be a crime. There are a few examples um, where uh, the age gap has been large enough that even though the couple got married, the man was still prosecuted for statutory rape, but those are real exceptions to the rule. By and large, if everyone is in favor of the marriage, the parents both of the parties to the couple, or both of the, the people in the couple, um, and the DA, then no one's prosecuting that, that man. Hmm. You can go, you can be prosecuted for statutory rape and still marry the girl. Still be married. Still be married. Be in jail? Rarely. Okay. I mean, by and large, that is not how it happens. Usually the marriage is sort of seen as a way of getting out of the statutory rape right. uh, prosecution. Okay. Hmm. How and there's get... a long history of that. Um, statutory rape laws have only been around for mm, like a little over 100 years, depending on the state. Um, they first became passed in 1885 and then onwards through the 1920s. Um, and throughout that time, the age of marriage in most states was lower than the statutory rape age or the age of consent to sex. And most judges were willing to allow a couple to marry um, even if statutory rape had already occurred, in part because they simply see marriage as a good thing that is going to protect the girl. And they were also very concerned about issues of legitimacy, so they wanted that child to be born legitimate as opposed to illegitimate. Mm. How, how'd you get into this? This is an interesting corner of uh, conversation. Yeah, so I'm a historian of gender and sexuality by training, mm -hmm. um, and I was interested both in the history of marriage and then also, uh, to a degree, in this little problem that we've been talking about. So what is it about marriage that le led lawmakers and, you know, religious figures and um, all kinds of other people to see certain kinds of sex as being safe and legitimate and fine, even though if that sex occurred outside of marriage, everyone would be very upset about it. So what is it about our beliefs in marriage that lead us to alter our opinions and believe that couples are sort of safe and protected? That's sort of like the, the heart of the problem. And then I ended up studying the issue really from the late 18th century onward. And what did, did you, you find? find? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, lots and lots of things. I mean, I was studying uh, both sort of the demography of the problem, so how frequently did this occur? And the answer to that is it occurred much more frequently in the past than it does today. So mm -hmm. while um, uh, we estimate that in the last 10 to 15 years, about 250,000 uh, girls and a few boys um, were married in the United States below the age of 18, those numbers were far higher in the 19th century and the early 20th century. It was um, normal so then, though, right? Go ahead. It was normal Pardon then, me? though, wasn't it? Wasn't there it a was time in history when, yeah, I mean, a girl 14 years old marries some guy who's 35, and he, she takes care of his house, he takes care of her. Cause That's right, Because yeah. it was all about I mean, finding the girl a way to be taken care of because women weren't making their own way in the world. At least that's my kind of half-cocked look at. No, 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 no. You're absolutely right. So 
to a degree, it was, you know, girls who, by and large, they're only, they were not going to be working outside of the home. They were expected to marry regardless. And so younger girls um, would marry, and their sort of contribution to the household was as wife and as mother. But it's also the case that we just didn't have the same idea of a protected childhood in the past that we have now. So, for instance, in the 19th century, kids worked. They sometimes worked for pay or they worked in their parents' household. Mm-hmm. Um, kids were not required to go to school because in lots of places there were no schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so the notion of protecting children and treating them as a separate kind of being that was both innocent and in need of just playing and being educated all the time didn't exist in many places in the 19th century, uh, meaning that children doing adult-like things like marriage just wasn't seen as abnormal in the way that it would be for us now. Why, why don't we see any of these child marriages in the movies? Um, you know, it's and, frowned upon. In the Old West. And not, looking well, at in Westerns. the Old West, well, you're right, because that's more when it happened mm-hmm. that you would see, and definitely in other cultures. In some cultures, it still happens. Yeah. Where a girl uh, as young as maybe 9 or 10 is married off to a man, and uh, wow, I read an article. Seems like a couple of years ago now about this, about this phenomenon, and I was just like, oh my goodness. Hmm. What do you think? Uh, why don't we see it in the movies? And if it if it was happening, and it was definitely happening, um, any any theory on that? Is it just a ugly past? I think. Yes. I think in part maybe we just did, that's not a part of sort of the of American culture that we want to celebrate. And that's been going on for a long time. The way the way that Americans have talked about child marriage is as if it's something that only happens in other places. For, yeah. say, 200 years or so, the way that we've talked about, uh, you know, developing countries, third world nations, is that these are places that have child marriage. And by and large, kids who get married in other uh, places are getting married much younger than they did in the United States. But it's still a way of saying, the United States, we're civilized. We don't allow for young people to get married. That's something that happens in other places. So depicting it in movies would be coming, sort of, uh, would be admitting to something that we don't like to think that we actually do here in the United States, even though it's perfectly legal for, for young people to get married in, in all states here, too. So if we didn't do it, it wouldn't be legal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our laws are set up to allow for this to happen. And there are um, uh, debates in a number of states right now um, to ban the practice. And some of those are more successful than others. So New York State, Virginia, Texas have banned certain minors from marrying. Um, but in New Jersey, just um, last, well, I guess a month and a half ago now, uh, both the New Jersey House and the New Jersey Senate voted overwhelmingly to pass a ban on child marriage, and Governor Chris Christie vetoed it. What? Interesting. Yes. Wow. He argued that uh, he did not want to infringe on the rights of certain religious communities who he believed he did not name those religious communities, but who apparently he believed were in support of child marriage, and he did not want to infringe upon their rights. What and religious? So he what had already been debated vigorously in New Jersey um, and had passed with unanimous support in its House and Senate. 
just based on your own research, what religious communities in the U.S. and in particular in the Northeast would be affected by a ban against child marriage? It is unclear to me. I think that one of the ways that child marriage has been represented is as an immigrant problem. Um, I think that's inaccurate. Okay. Um, by and large, the, the people who are marrying uh, below the age of 18 are doing so primarily in rural states, and they're doing so in southern states as well. And these are states that don't have large numbers of uh, of immigrants in the way that, for instance, in the Northeast and the Midwest, there are larger numbers of immigrants. Um, so it's unclear to me which religious groups he's referring to here. But some believe, and there's evidence certainly that this happens, um, that some immigrants come to the United States and they would like their children to be married at young ages. Um, they can't do it here because the ages are too young, depending on where they live. And so they return home to wherever it is that they're from and marry their children there. I don't think that the numbers of those people is very high, um, but I think maybe that's what he's sort of alluding to when but he's talking about immigrants. But if you're an immigrant, immigrant you're, immigrants aren't even citizens. So I can't imagine that he that he vetoed on their behalf on the on the behalf of people that aren't even citizens these are u.s citizens tried and true i'm saying what community is he protecting because it's clear that they're here and established easy easy Nancy. sorry <laughs> <laughs> don't cover yeah, for him <laughs> yeah so he doesn't say it but generally when people so there when virginia passed a, a version of a child marriage ban and it doesn't ban it outright but it basically says in order for you to get married if you're below the age of 18 you have to already have gone through the process of legal emancipation so you've gone through a pretty rigorous process before a judge and then you're already legally an adult and you can choose to marry so basically we're probably talking about people who are like 17 years old maybe 16 year old mm -hmm. but even in virginia there was some opposition to it and generally the opposition was about issues of sex so people thought that if you banned the ability of young people to marry that it might lead to abortion or that it might lead to illegitimacy and basically that if you if teenagers were having sex they should be married was the basic logic as if marriage would somehow magically solve any of the problems that would come along because these people were teenagers who might be having children they're gonna have some problems anyway got it welcome to frank relationships a show for you my brethren who like me are too young to be considered old and too old to be considered young it's also for those of you who love and support us we're here to provide weekly wisdom conversation and the information that will help create loving and flexible parents and partners i'm frank love and you can find me, my blog, and my various social media incarnations at franklove.com. If you're listening to the show on Blog Talk Radio, please follow us. And if via iTunes, please subscribe so that you can effortlessly get the show each week. Also, if you're enjoying the show, and of course you are, please give us a favorable iTunes rating. And please share it with your family and friends on your favorite social media platform. We're always looking for new social media friends, so please help us help our communities by spreading the word about the show. Greetings to my super-duper co-host, Nancy Goldring. Greetings, Frank. The consummate generalist is in the house. <laughs> Off and running. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, you are. <laughs> I was like, we hadn't done that yet. <laughs> she, has, she has swum out. She is swimming 
hard. <laughs> All right, let's rein you in a little bit, Nancy. Okay. This is clearly okay. one that uh, has mm-hmm. your attention. <laughs> Today's guest is an associate professor of history at the University of Northern Colorado and is interested in the history of women, gender, and sexuality in the United States during the 19th and 20th centuries. This interest has led to the research and writing about the construction of masculinity and sexuality in white college fraternities and on histories of queer sexuality. I'm going to be real interested to talk about the white college fraternities piece because I'm in a black college fraternity. So that's going to be interesting. He's the co-editor of Age in America, The Colonial Era to the Present, and the author of The Company He Keeps a history of white college fraternities, and also gender and American culture series, an American child bride, a history of minor and marriage in the United States. I know I got some of that convoluted, Doc, so bear with me. (laughs) So if you, like me, want to know how to get a better understanding of a dynamic where a 51-year-old may marry a 15-year-old, the history of child marriage and related laws, and how perceptions of everyday citizens have changed over the years pertaining to child marriages, then stay tuned as your Frank Relationship team talks with Dr. Nicholas Surrett. Dr. Surrett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we get too deep, uh, any deeper into today's (laughs) subject matter... We're going to check in to see what's going on in the news. So please, Dr. Surrett, don't be bashful. We certainly want you to weigh in on uh, whatever comes up. Okay. Uh, I I was looking at at an article called Nine Simple Reasons You Didn't Get a Second Date. Mm. Okay, Nancy, you want to tell us why you didn't get one? (laughs) Okay. I'm not familiar with this phenomenon, if I must say. (laughs) Your issue would be why you didn't give one. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, all right. Go on, Frank. Here are a few. Yes. Um, Your date didn't feel the same chemistry. Okay. You brought up your ex. Too often. Mm Mm-hmm. The date felt more like an interview. Mm. Your date is just a rude person. So, uh the date lasted too long. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Too, okay. Too long could be a problem. Like, you know, yeah. Cut the cord. Take we'll talk tomorrow, home. right? Yeah. Uh, you seem less than interested. You were late to the date. Wow. How late is bad? Depends on whether you called or not. Okay. All right. So if you call 30 minutes, if actually, call. if you call early enough, uh, an hour. You know, if you call, and we're supposed to go out at, say, 7, mm-hmm. and you call me at noontime and say, listen, something's come up, and I know I'm going to be at least an hour late, but I shouldn't be any later than that. Is it okay for us to meet at 8, or is that too late for you? Mm-hmm. As long as whatever we're doing is not time-sensitive, and you've communicated, 30 minutes to an hour. Okay. But if you, I agree, but yeah. only with that rescheduling. If you're going to be 30 minutes to an hour without the rescheduling, that's the problem. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So, okay, all right, all right. Um, you were la- you you were burned out from dating, and it's starting to show. Hmm. Mm. Oh, you burned out from dating? 
Am I burned out? I don't think so. You just don't like to date. Or do you? <laughs> do you like to date? I'm going to reserve the right All not right. to answer All right. that <laughs> Doc, are you married? Me? Yes. No, I'm not married. I have a partner, but we're not married. Okay, okay. all right. So you don't, it, you, you, to ask you about. So you're you beyond the dating stage with your partner. I have not been dating in about eight years. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Gotcha. All okay. right. So we can't really, well, you can weigh in. I mean, you, oh, you sure, had I can a, weigh in. <laughs> you had a, you've had dates in the past. Oh, no so. question. I have had many dates in many the past. Many dates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You ever been burnt down on dating? Uh, yeah, I think like sometimes online dating can be a little can burn you out a little bit if you go oh, on yes, too yeah. many of them right. i i don't know that i went on too many but you you just keep meeting people and it's, you're not clicking and that can be a little tiring mm -hmm. yeah and the last one is you didn't text them and i guess that means you you didn't That's text the, the next day <laughs> <laughs> after the date you didn't text the person mm, or uh, call or see or once call. upon a time it was you didn't call uh -huh. now it's you didn't text all right so when you go on a date yeah do you how do you do yeah, what's what's your dating how do i determine interest protocol? well texting is a new phenomenon for me personally meaning that texting is okay like it substitutes for a phone call mm -hmm. so maybe in the last 10 years i'm like oh this is how it's done mm -hmm. okay so but i expect a lot of uh not a lot but i definitely expect to hear from uh, the man the next day if you care whether I care or not I expect to hear from him really sure it would be it would be a slap in the face if you went on a date and you didn't even like him you you weren't feeling him and he didn't text you the next day if I didn't like him it would be grace uh-huh <laughs> it would be grace <laughs> to not hear from him the next day mm -hmm. And if I, and yet I just, I expect to hear from them the next day and I hear from them the next day. Maybe it's all about getting what you expect. And what about him? Were you texting him? First? Yes. Don't be absurd. <laughs> now here, what? now this is interesting. I mean, this is total, I guess you could say, um, Double tradition standard or something. something like that yeah. Uh -huh. So I just don't, I, I I don't think men want to be chased by women. I just don't think that, that uh, that's ultimately what's, what gets them going. I think that men prefer to be the pursuer, mm. ideally. What if you just send them a text the next morning and say it's morning? Um, uh, well, let's just say if I did that, uh, it would be, I would have done it from a very uncomfortable place. Really? Yes, yes. Doc, what you got? You you have any comment? To any historical no. <laughs> perspective? <laughs> any any on comment? Who makes what move when? It seems to me so. I mean, courtship traditionally was something where men were meant to be pursuing women, in part because men, you know, had financial independence and women didn't. And I think that even though we're in an era now where almost all women are working and men, most women are working, in fact, even after they get married. This is one of those sort of vestiges, like a tradition that we're still left over with that people are still attached to, even though it's not wed even though it's not sort of linked to the same economic constraints and all that sort of stuff that from where it came from, if that makes sense. Okay. Hmm. Uh, do you have any advice for Nancy? Uh, <laughs> 
Christian see how he's looking at me right now. Like, can you get her off of this? Her <laughs> I'm sure Thank you, sir. He's looking at me like I'm something from the Stone Age. I'm like, I beg your pardon. Sending a text the next day. Well, just... somebody's got to send it. Exactly. So well, why in the world would it be me? I, I just... <laughs> That's so I want a man to be a man. I don't want to I don't want to emasculate him in any way and I don't want to uh force my way into another person's life. I understand. However, you're saying, did you hear Cuz I'm going to say to you the night before, thank you. I had a fantastic time. He may or may not say, and I'm just being politically correct when I say may or may not say, I hope we can do this again. Okay. Uh And then the next day, at some point, he's going to say, hey, you. And I'm going to say, hey. Do you hear? I I really want you to think about what you just said. (laughs) I don't want to think about it. I'm just telling you how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. All right. You said... You're going to say, thank you, I had a nice time. You're just going to say it. You I don't am. Even, but you may not even have a nice time. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to say I had a nice time if I didn't. No, but I, I'm talking about what you said. Yes, now, yes. Now, now that I'm putting a spotlight now, on it, you can't, you can't run. You <laughs> got to. Okay, I'm going to say, you know what? I had a great time. Thank you so much. And then he's going to say, I ha- listen, I had a guy say to me one time, it was a blind date. The only, I think the only blind date I ever went on. First, definitely was the first one. And so we go out, we have dinner, we talk, yada, yada, yada. And so at the end, he drops me off and he says, I hope we can do this again. And I'm like, no, we won't do this again. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? I said, you know what? And I said to him, I had a nice time. However, I know we will not do this again. Uh, what did he say? He just, he looked at me kind of stunned. So and get I, the hell out of my know, car. <laughs> maybe, but I didn't want to be dishonest. Mm-hmm. I yeah. just didn't want to be dishonest and have him to think that if he called me and said it, no, no, we're not doing this again, boo. <laughs> but I had a nice time. I enjoyed you. Thank you. It was a blind date. I did not feel obligated to keep that thing going. Mm-hmm. It was a it was the roll of the dice. It's a blind date. And what made it a poor date? Nothing. Nothing made it a poor date. What? I didn't wait a minute. Let's go back what? to the list. I did not have chemistry with him. Okay. All right. None. <laughs> and I'm like, come on now. Life is too tough. You gotta have at least chemistry. Doctor Surrett, <laughs> you got the last word. You anything you want to say on this before we close out this segment? Before we put Nancy uh, on Tinder. <laughs> no, I mean I, I do think that like one of the things that makes dating bearable when it is sometimes challenging is that we have these sort of like scripts and rules for how things go. And so one of the ones is sort of that men do one part of it and women do another part if we're talking about heterosexual dating, and that that's helpful in some ways to, mm-hmm. to figure out, like, I know what the rules are, this is my role, and then this is going to be her role or his role, so you know how the thing is going, when otherwise it can be a little sort of uncertain and sometimes confusing. Mm. Okay. Let me just say, for the record, say that it. I think relationship is irresistible when the man is 100% engaged. And I'm fine with not being that woman that mm-hmm. just blows his hair back. I want the man to be so turned out 
by the woman he's interested in that there is no question about who does what. So my thing is, if you don't have that level of interest in me, my head is not so big that I can't deal with that. Mm -hmm. You keep it moving. Because mm. I want to be with the guy who sold out on Nancy. And if I and if we have to go back and forth about who should be calling who, you ain't sold out on me. <laughs> Period. And let me and let me just say one time last year, I was talking to a young man who who is self-described as polyamorous. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're we're just in a completely different situation and we're talking about another couple, a married couple. Polyamory, polyamory had nothing to do with the discussion. Mm -hmm. So I said to him, I said, if you met a woman like that, like this guy was married to, I said, what would you do? He said, oh my God. He said, are you kidding? I'd marry her in a New York second and be off manifesting my dreams. So that let me know he wasn't really poly. He just hadn't met the girl for him. Mm. He just hadn't met the girl for him. So I'm, I'm interested in people meeting the people for them and going through the ups and downs and the challenges and travails and the highs associated with being deeply involved with one another and having a rich and uh, textured relationship. I don't want to, I don't want to lukewarm. I don't, you know, I don't want to just, we get together when we can. I don't want that. Is poly a form of being lukewarm? Well, I felt in that particular situation it was. And I wasn't looking for the irony of that particular question that that particular conversation was. I wasn't looking for that. Mm -hmm. I just threw it out there. And his response told me so much. Mm. It told me so much. And it really, for me, confirmed that when a man or, or when two people not even just a man and a woman, when two, when two people meet the right each other and, and they're saying, oh, I beg your pardon, we can just close the door on this. The sale has ended, ladies and gentlemen, we're sold out. Mm -hmm. When you meet that person, you just don't see anybody else. Mm. You just don't. And even if you do, you, it's like, well, you know, you're cute and everything, but I'm going home to Hassan. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's a part of me that doesn't want to belabor this, but I, let me say one more piece. And that's the, 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 what I was getting at, my kind of issue with what you said about not being willing to text first. It's, it's like you wake up at 7 a.m., he wakes up at 8 a.m., and you're thinking about him. Why not be just forefront and say, hey, just I had a great time. I was thinking about you. Um, period. And it's just it's just a, a type of it's a style of communicating that gets past. It's casual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it gets past mm -hmm. the, the protocol. Yeah. Protocol. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Anything you want to say on that? Either one of you, Doc? Yeah. I'll hmm. give it a shot. I mean, I would love it if we could get to a sort of situation in dating where men and women did not have sort of prescribed roles where men were meant to be doing one thing and women were meant to be doing another thing and everyone could just sort of do as they felt. I just don't know if we're necessarily there yet. Mm -hmm. A, and what about in, in gay relationships, uh, two men? How, how might you see that playing out with the dynamic that we just noted? Yeah, I mean, I am not a, like a sociologist or an expert on these things, mm -hmm. but 
I mean, in the end, the rules are off a little bit because you don't have, you know, if it's two men or if it's two women, two women there's right. no prescribed role. So mm-hmm. someone's going to have to be the one to send that text or call next or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no rule for who it's going to be. So it's whoever is either most enthusiastic or has the most courage or whatever it is. Yeah. Hmm. You've got several books, and so I've talked about them. Um, Age in America, the Colonial Era to the Present. That's a book you mm-hmm. co-edited, correct? That's correct, yes. And then you have another, The Company He Keeps, A History of White College Fraternities. That's right. And there's another, Gender and American Culture Series. Is that, is, am that's I getting... actually just the series that that book on fraternities is in. That's not a book. Gotcha. It was published in a series about gender and American culture. Okay, okay. And the last is American Child Bride, A History of Minors That's and Marriage right. in the United States. Okay. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Mm. So what just on a, on, a, on a what feels like at some level an aside, the white fraternities, the his, the, the histories of white fraternities, how did you get into that? And, and why just white fraternities? Did you go to a school with just white fraternities? Um, and, you know, because like I mentioned, I'm a part of a black fraternity. So mm-hmm. just, hey, just jump in. Yeah. So I'm, I was interested in the history of masculinity and the way that sort of men act out what it is to be men. Um, and one of the things I observed at the, you know, before I started writing that book, uh, which originally was my doctoral dissertation, um, was that some men in groups sort of exerted power in ways that were threatening to other people. And, and fraternities or the white fraternities I observed, um, these are the sort of organizations that get in the news a whole lot for binge drinking and hazing and sexual assault and so forth. And that was part of what interested me. Why is it that these men were doing these things in a way that I suspected they might not do if they were not in these organizations or that they were just sort of like living on their own, but they were involved in these sort of behaviors when they were all uh, joined together in these fraternities. So I, uh, I was interested in groups of men. Fraternities were one way to study that question because there are archives that exist for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I did just the white fraternities in, is in part because I was interested in the form, like the way that racism also plays a part in those organizations and how mm-hmm. they construct their brotherhood as being white to the exclusion of people of color as well. Um, but the other wow. simple answer is that there's actually been a whole lot of writing on black fraternities and mm-hmm. some on fraternities, Latino fraternities and multicultural fraternities. So I didn't want to like redo what other historians had already done. Uh-huh. So what did you find in terms of the racial impact um, and, and why there? I, I assume when you talk about uh, exerting exerting force or I'm not sure exactly what your words were, but in mm-hmm. exerting a certain influence, a uh, forceful influence over other men. I assume you, I assume you're referencing hazing. Um, so yeah, to what, a degree. Yeah. Okay. So what do you, what did you find there? Yeah. So in terms of the race question, when fraternities were founded in the, in the 19th century on U S college campuses, 1820s and so forth, there really were, they were all white colleges in the first place. So they didn't have to have a policy about whether students of color were going to be admitted because the students of color were already not admitted to the college. So it was only in the later 19th century when small numbers of African-Americans 
um, when some Jews and Catholics and Asian Americans started attending the same schools as white people um, who, you know, and obviously this is a whole history of discrimination in and of itself. But all these fraternities instituted bans. They basically wrote into their constitution that their brotherhood would be all white and all Protestant, period. Mm -hmm. So they excluded people of color and men of color from their organizations. And it was only in the, like, 1940s, 50s, and 60s during the Civil Rights Movement that some fraternities, primarily those at, like, small liberal arts colleges in the Northeast, started to admit men of color into their brotherhoods. And then eventually... You know, any school that received any federal funding, it was illegal for them to exclude, to practice racial, racial segregation. And so technically no fraternity is allowed to exclude people of color. Um, but there are some that are still de facto white organizations anyway. They just sort of have unwritten rules about who's going to be admitted. Mm-hmm. Which tag went first? Was it Protestant or color? Protestant. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... So there were, I mean, there were still some, I would say, that were pretty anti-Semitic, so they'd be more open to the idea of admitting a Catholic, for instance, mm-hmm. than they would someone who was Jewish. Um, but then others would admit some Jews, and then, uh, you know, eventually, um, that there were, in the 40s and early 50s, uh, some fraternities came forward quite publicly admitting um, uh, African-American men, um, and then sometimes what happened was that their national organization basically cut off ties with the chapter at a college, and they became an independent sort of local fraternity so that they could have, um, a, you know, a, a non-white brother. Hmm. Okay. What about the the hazing part? Why do you find that men want to exert this force over others? Yeah, so the hazing uh, originated on college campuses, originated long before fraternities even existed. Generally speaking, like sophomore, the sophomore class would haze the freshman class as sort of a way of like welcoming them into uh, the college and making them prove that they were worthy of being there. Well, there was, um, but it, Mike, go ahead. I was just thinking it was more like um, teasing, practical joking, you know, making you do certain tasks to kind of earn your right to be a part. It wasn't. Exactly. Um, And it gets sort of more violent and a little bit more dangerous. I mean, the later 19th century when it migrates into fraternities, in part, like it's no longer a class rush because the classes are too big and it just doesn't work that way anymore. And so fraternities start to haze people, uh, I think, for a couple reasons. One is similar to the class class sort of hazing and rush that is you need to prove that you are manly enough to be a member of this organization the other idea here is that you the pledge class sort of their individual identities are broken down through hazing and they come to be united to one another in the pledging process so there it develops loyalty both to your fellow pledges and to the organization more generally um, through the pledging process but then also um, I think there's this notion that during the rush process, so that's the, the moment when all of the, the prospective members are trying to decide who they, which organization they want, and the, the active brothers are trying to court them and basically say, you should pledge our fraternity, we're the best, you want to be in, in our fraternity. They're in some way supplicating themselves to the freshmen, mm-hmm. and then 
you get it reversed in the pledge process. Once mm-hmm. those freshmen have said, all right, I've made my decision. It's you. You're the one I want to get into. Then the, you know, the upperclassmen are back in charge, and they can say, now we're going to exert our power over you, and you're mm-hmm. going to show us that you really want this. And that means we get to make you do things that are going to be uncomfortable, dangerous, embarrassing, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. Mm. And is it uniquely male? You had said something about are you manly enough to be a part of this organization? Is it uniquely male to be uh, violent and oppressive and intimidating? No. Um, sororities, for instance, do haze as well, but I, I, I'm not an expert on their forms of hazing, sure. but it is a bit different. Okay. Um, so some of the stuff that the men's fraternities do uh, is different from the, the women's sororities. So men's fraternities tend to be a little bit more violent. There's also, by and large, and this is more a factor in the white fraternities, there's some like uh, sort of nudity, homoerotic stuff. It's stuff basically to like be as humiliating and embarrassing as possible because these men in fraternities think that being gay is sort of the, the most terrifying, yeah, um, at least in these white college fraternities. So the more that they can be humiliated, the more they're sort of broken down and then they can be sort of joined back up together and more drinking as well. Mm. Uh, wow. Okay, so back to the, uh, the, child, the child's marriage piece. The mm-hmm. one of the things we have not discussed was the concept of incest. Um, and so is is there does incest come up with this dynamic at all? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, between in families, does that is that an issue at all? Uh, it's not an issue that I found only because uh, almost all states really from the very beginning uh, of the colonial era um, instituted codes for who might or might not marry one another. Mm-hmm. So if you are related in a whole variety of different ways, uncle, niece, cousins, you know, that sort of thing, um, depending on the relationship and the state you live in, you can't marry one another. So there's certainly lots, you know, there is sadly incest within families, but marriage is not sort of the solution to that kind of incest. It isn't it isn't a way of sanctifying a relationship that would be illegal otherwise because a marital incestuous relationship is illegal in almost all states. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about, we, we, so we've talked about it from the perspective of older men, younger women or, young, or girls even, but what yeah. about older women and young boys? It's rare. It, the law um, always allowed girls to marry before boys until, depending on the state, usually around the 1970s. The presumption was that girls should marry earlier, could marry earlier, and that boys needed to be older because they needed to uh, be able to support their families and so forth uh, by having a career or a job. Um, and so it, it's always been much more common for older men to marry younger girls. But there certainly are exceptions. There were older women who sometimes married boys below the age of 18. It just didn't happen all that often Mm -hmm. because our culture is set up in such a way that we believe that the man is meant to be older than the woman that he marries. Um, And only in recent years has that shifted. But still, the vast majority of American marriages, the man is older than the woman. Mm and to the point, I would say that when an older woman does marry a younger man, that tends to make headlines, whereas when an older man, I mean, we would not have enough newspapers to cover uh, 
older men marrying younger women because it happens so frequently. But for instance, like most of us remember the sordid case of Mary Kay Letourneau, yeah. uh, the Washington State teacher who had a statutory uh, an affair with a student that was statutory rape. She was imprisoned. She ended up becoming pregnant. She married uh, this young man. Um, but that made headlines for years. Yeah. Um, and what's your take on the marriage between the new president of France and his wife? I think it's fascinating. Um, well, give the he, details. He's. Uh, go, ahead. go ahead, Doc. Go ahead. No, all I know is uh, I believe he may be in his early 40s. She's 65. And they've been together, I think, for what, 17 years? Mm. She was his yeah. drama teacher. And yes. in the, uh, maybe some part of, uh, in, in the, I want to say the French countryside, and they sent him to, their relationship had become a scandal at the school, so they changed his school, moved him to another uh, uh, institution, and and he told her that he would be back for her. And yeah. surely enough, he came back to court her legitimately, and they got married. They don't have children. She has children, and I think even grandchildren, but yeah. they don't have any children together. That's yeah. a movie. I think Isn't what's it? fascinating is sort of our our interest in it because their age difference is exactly the same age difference as that between Donald and Melania Trump. And right. Certainly, Donald Trump, like the age gaps between his wives, have been growing. So he was actually pretty close in age to Ivanka, or sorry, Ivana yeah. Trump. And then the age gap got a little bit bigger with uh, Marla Maples, and then it got quite large um, with Melania. Um, and it's the same as between uh, Emmanuel Macron and his wife. 24 um, but years. Yeah. 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 It's a fascinating that, that it's such an exception to the rule. We're so used to the opposite. Um, but when we see this, we're more inclined to talk about it. Right. So Donald Trump may very well he he may very well keep marrying the same aged woman even as he gets older. <laughs> so, <laughs> nope. Indeed. I, I need a I need a 24 year old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even though I'm 80. Wait. Well, wait a right. minute. There was this common thing among among men, especially older men. There was this saying that we that I never want to have more than a hundred years in bed between us something like that <laughs> i'll just mention this for historic perspective there was a guy named john derrick okay who bo uh, derrick's husband well bo derrick's husband linda evans husband uh, and mm. ursula andrus husband wow when he was 30 he married ursula andrus who was 21 okay. they divorced okay. when he was 40 he married linda evans who was 20 one year younger wow. and when he was 50 he married 19 year old oh. bo oh, derrick <laughs> interesting <Okay>. my hero <laughs> <laughs> Your your wife doesn't listen to the show. No, no, I got to make sure of that. Child marriage. <laughs> statistically, marry women who are younger. Like the age gap is almost always greater than the age gap between their first wife or indeed their second wife. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay. All right. Mm. Uh, what are, what do you know about same sex marriages involving a minor? Any any stats there? Any history now? I don't know if we have statistics yet. It's interesting. I mean, someone may have calculated it, but I don't think that it is. I, mean, I, I have seen no cases in the news reporting on minors involved in same-sex marriages. And obviously, we just don't have a lot of history here because 
even in the state that has allowed it the longest, it's still not been going on for very long. So I'm not sure that that we have much in the way of information about how frequent it is. I don't I don't think it's very frequent, but I don't know. Time will tell, yeah. And mm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my understanding of your position is that it's the child, the ch- young child, older person, let's say 30-year-old marrying a 13-year-old. I believe you believe that to be problematic. I have not. I do. Yes. Okay. I have not heard you say it's wrong. What do? Well, yeah. So, but I think basically is that no one needs to get married that badly. I don't think that there's any real need for marriage among. I mean, to be perfectly frank, I don't think there's any need for legal marriage. Period mm. for anyone. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think that we can organize our lives without getting the state involved in giving out benefits for married people only and not single people. But all that aside, I think there's no pressing need for a 13 year old or indeed a 17 year old to get married. I think that they can wait. Mm-hmm. Legally, there is no, there are almost no consequences to illegitimacy anymore. So the child being marked as illegitimate outside the bounds of marriage, I don't think is a pressing social issue anymore. So I don't think that getting married for the sake of the child really holds any weight anymore. Uh, Meaning that if, you know, religious denominations want to sanction marriages, that would be fine. But I don't think the state needs to get involved in doing it for people who are under the age of 18, because almost all the studies that we have demonstrate that mostly girls but some boys who get married below the age of 18 are more likely to be abused by their spouses they're more likely to suffer mentally and physical sort of like health uh, issues they're much more likely to divorce um, it's just they're, they're more likely to drop out of high school all of these are bad things um, and if we can you know keep young people from them so much the better mm. You're listening to Frank Relationships, and we've been talking to the co-editor of Age in America, The Colonial Era to the Present, and the author of The Company He Keeps, A History of White College Fraternities. And he's also the author of American Child Bride. He's Dr. Nicholas Surrett. Dr. Surrett, would you please tell us what you're up to and how we can find you? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm actually now, I just switched jobs. I'm a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Kansas. Uh, and you can find me on the website at the University of Kansas. Gotcha. I'm, nice. I'm sorry. I am. I apologize for, for missing that. No, not at all. I just, I mean, I have not yet started that job. I'll be starting in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, you know, my bio still exists on the, my previous employer, which is the University of Northern Colorado. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Along today's journey, we've discussed statutory rape. We've discussed child and older adult relationships. And, and funny enough, why we don't see it in the movies. I find that, I find that particularly interesting, <laughs> um, especially in old Westerns. You know, that seems like it would just be... Well, remember, those Westerns are being made now, or they yeah. were made at a time future to when they occurred so it's just like the doctor says we didn't want to uh aggrandize a part of our history that we're not exactly we either no longer condone or no are no longer proud of Mm -hmm. and i i will say if you are interested there is um a 1938 movie called child bride um and it is a dramatization that is 
in no way faithful to what actually happened, but of a very famous case of child marriage that occurred in 1937 in Tennessee. Um, and then they made a movie the next year in 1938 that is a unrelated, except that it's sort of capitalizing on uh, the all the publicity that occurred from the 1937 the scandal. Movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's available on Netflix. Available okay. on Netflix. Okay. Cool. Okay. Any, any particular movie or book that you recommend, I mean, different than your own? <laughs> um, trying to think. I mean, that movie is certainly well worth seeing to see how, I mean, one of the fascinating things about it is that the movie was made as a way to sort of convince Americans that child marriage was a bad thing and that children should not be exploited. Mm-hmm. But what they actually did was they included a 12-year-old actress in a nude swimming scene. So in the name of banning child exploitation, they, they exploited, exploited a 12-year-old movie actress mm-hmm. in order to gain ratings and make more money. Um, mm-hmm. So one wonders how committed they were to the practice of banning child exploitation in the first place. Wow. Okay. Um, there, are also, there are also certainly, there's a lot more written. The United Nations has published a number of different studies about uh, child marriage as it's practiced globally, which does look different from what happens in the United States. So um, generally younger girls um, and uh, often marrying sort of via arranged marriage, um, as opposed to what's happening in the United States, where by and large, even if they're making bad decisions, most teenagers are consenting to the unions, mm-hmm. we believe. Okay. You know, we've, we've also shared unique stories between older and younger individuals getting hitched or, or being in relationships. Mm-hmm. So thank you to my co-host, Nancy. Thanks to Jeff Newman, my engineer. And thank you to my guest, Dr. Nicholas Surrett. You've been great. Thank I- you. I hope you've had as much fun hanging out with today's ensemble. As always, it's my wish for you to walk away from this conversation with a heaping helping of useful information that'll help you create a relationship that's as loving and accepting as possible. Let us know what you thought of today's show at Facebook forward slash Relationship F Love, on Twitter at Mr. That's Mr. Frank Love, or at FrankLove.com. If you're listening via Blog Talk Radio, make sure you like us there, and if via iTunes, make sure you subscribe so that you can receive each week's show. This is Frank Love.